1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead.
0: Hey, Murder Diaries listeners. We're excited to bring you two new episodes today. However, before we get started on this specific episode, we want to make it clear that all research for the episode was conducted and or collected by us here at the Murder Diaries. And it's independent of any parties involved in the trial regarding this case in any way whatsoever.
1: We should state that, yes, we always do our own research, but with this case in particular, we just want to to make it clear since it is still very sensitive as a trial is ongoing. It's been
0: 20 years since Alyssa Marie Turney disappeared. It was May 17th, 2001, when Alyssa stopped by her boyfriend John's shop class to tell him that she was leaving school early and that she'd see him later that night at a party. But after that, Alyssa's trail goes cold. And over the years, her case got even colder. That is until a new lead led investigators to a suspect closer to home than anyone could have imagined. Now, with an ongoing trial and a family inches from justice, we're still left wondering, what happened to Alyssa Turney? All right, I'm taking you all the way back to April 3rd, 1984. That's when Alyssa Turney was born to Barbara and Stephen Stram. Unfortunately, the couple's marriage ended three years later when Barbara met and married a man 10 years her senior named Michael Roy Turney. Now, Barbara and Michael's marriage sort of resulted in a modern-day Brady Bunch situation because they both entered the marriage with children from previous relationships. On the one hand, Michael had three older sons, Rhett, James and Michael Turney Jr. And Barbara had two children, Alyssa and Alyssa's older brother named John, from a different father. Not too long into this marriage, maybe about a year or so, Barbara and Michael welcomed a daughter named Sarah. And this further cemented the blending of the families and took the kid count all the way to six. And making sure the family was blended seems to have been a critical part of Barbara and Michael's parenting strategy. Further underscoring this point, Michael and Barbara refused to allow the prefix step as in stepsister, stepmother, stepfather, stepbrother, you get the picture, in their home, at least according to a 2020 interview that Michael Turney was a part of. In the 1990s, Alyssa's mom, Barbara, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And shortly after, in 1993, she passed away. Alyssa is only nine years old when her mother passes away. And soon after, she's adopted by Michael, her stepfather, and raised by him, along with her younger sister, Sarah. Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly
1: without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call
0: 877-861-4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Now, those older siblings we did mention earlier, because they're so much older, didn't spend much time at home. So primarily it was Alyssa and Sarah. According to Michael, Alyssa experienced some symptoms that he believed to be ADD. And there was never really an official diagnosis of ADD. And she wasn't on medication, but he deemed it reason enough to give her special attention. Something that also corroborates Michael's concerns of Alyssa's struggles is that she had an IEP at school. An IEP is an individualized education plan that essentially afforded Alyssa special accommodations to support her learning. That brings us to May 17th, 2001. Alyssa's on the cusp of adulthood. She's a fun, kind, and spontaneous 17-year-old attending classes on the last day of her junior year at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix, Arizona. The day starts like any other. Michael drops Alyssa off at school, and she goes to class. However, in what is now a highly criticized move, Michael returns to Paradise Valley High School at 11 a.m., and he's there to take Alyssa out of school early despite the fact that it was already an early release day. And we know Michael did this because on her way out of school, Alyssa stopped at her boyfriend John's shop class. She told him goodbye and that she'd see him later that night at an end-of-the-year party.
1: What was Michael's reasoning for picking her up early?
0: All right, from what I could find, there wasn't much of a reason other than lunch. The rest of the May 17th timeline is according to Michael Turney. So let's take it for what it is. And he says that he and Alyssa went straight to lunch, where the two of them got in a heated argument regarding Alyssa's desire for more leniency and freedoms, um, you know, a later curfew, loosening of the reins, sort of thing. And her reasoning was because it's summer and she'd be a senior in a few short months.
1: this seems like a pretty standard normal argument for a teenager to have with their guardian or parent. You're right. It
0: is a typical teenager-parent conversation. They like to test boundaries and, you know, they're yearning for their independence at that age. And they're always trying to stay out later than they probably should. Because now as women in our 30s, we all know that nothing good happens after midnight.
1: Yeah, that's literally a saying. And it's a saying because you learn it in your teenage years and your 20s that if you are somewhere at midnight and you leave, it better be to go home because nothing good is going to be happening after that. And it's so true, even speaking from my own experience. Yeah. So getting back to the struggle between Michael and Alyssa, I'm assuming since an argument about these topics ensued, I'm guessing he was saying, Sorry, you're still minor. You're still in high school. You live in my house. These are still the rules. They're not changing.
0: You're right. Michael Turney flat out refuses Alyssa's request. And there's actually a quote from an interview Michael Turney did a couple years ago. He tells the interview what exactly he told Alyssa. And if we can get the audio, it's going to go right here. And I told them, as long as you're under my roof, we're going to have to... Uh, Check in with daddy because daddy's a nervous wreck if you don't. We'll dissect that quote in a little bit because I want to stay on track with the timeline on the day Alyssa disappeared. However, I do want to acknowledge that what he said or how he said it, just something about how that quote came across feels a little creepy. Back to Alyssa's timeline. She's upset and angry and she retreats to her room the moment they get home. Michael leaves the family home around 1 p.m. He says it's to run errands and pick up Alyssa's younger sister, Sarah.
1: So where would Michael have to go in order to get Alyssa's sister then? Was she at school too that same day? Sort of. According
0: to a 2018 interview Sarah did with Kendall Ray, Sarah's entire seventh grade class spent the day at a water park. And this was to celebrate the end of the school year and the beginning of summer. Sounds fun to me. Yeah. Sarah and her class returned to school around 3.30 PM, which was around the typical time school got out. But Michael wasn't there to drive Sarah home. As a result, Sarah walked to a nearby friend's house where they smoked with cigarettes and as a result had to douse themselves in perfume in order to attempt at least to cover up the cigarette smell. Sounds like a teenager. Of course, right? Right. Typical teenager. Eventually, Michael arrives to pick up Sarah, who says in the Kendall Ray interview mentioned earlier that she notices nothing unusual about her father's behavior. She says, Yeah, sure. My dad was a bit frantic regarding Alyssa at this time, but that was his normal state when it came to things or all things Alyssa. However, in hindsight, as they say, it's 2020. Sarah thinks back to that day and finds it odd that her dad didn't reprimand her or ground her for smoking cigarettes with her friends because that was one of the only rules Sarah had was not to smoke. Her mom died of lung cancer as a result of smoking cigarettes. And she's 12 years old in seventh grade. Uh, No one wants their 12-year-old, their seventh grader smoking cigarettes. On the way home, Michael tells Sarah that he's worried about Alyssa. And of course, she's wondering what he means. And he says that he thinks she's missing and she's not answering any of his phone calls. Will Sarah call her sister from his phone? Sarah calls repeatedly, but she never receives an answer. Ten minutes later, Sarah and Michael return to their rented home and Sarah goes to her sister's room. Alyssa isn't there, but Sarah and Michael find something unusual. Alyssa's backpack has been dumped onto the floor with all of its contents everywhere. Sarah and Michael continued calling Alyssa's phone and eventually found it buzzing on the dresser. And on the dresser next to the phone, they find a note. I'm actually going to ask you to read it, Paige, if,
1: if you don't mind. I can do that. Dad and Sarah. When you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I'm really going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. Now, I want
0: to throw this in just as a quick fact. She had been saving her money from working at Jack in the Box. And at the time of her disappearance, she had $1,800 in her bank account. Experts later examined the note and determined that it is indeed Alyssa's handwriting. However, they weren't sure when it was written or if it was written in the same sitting. So not much could be proven other than, yes, she did write it. At this point, Michael Turney calls Alyssa's friends, her boyfriend, John, just everyone he can think of who would have come in contact with her. But nobody's heard from her. Michael, who was actually a former police officer himself, informs the Phoenix Police Department of Alyssa's disappearance, or rather of her runaway status. Because even though the police opened a missing persons file, they took Michael's word that Alyssa left for California to live with her maternal aunt on her own volition. And unfortunately, this isn't an isolated incident. Alyssa's case is plagued by countless failures on Phoenix PD's part. And here's just a handful, because I feel like it would take forever to go through all of them. Oh, boy. The first is the police never went to the attorney home the day that Michael reported her missing. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a formal search that night. They didn't have an Amber Alert. Nothing. Nothing. Law enforcement never spoke to the other person at the home, Alyssa's sister, Sarah, until years, years down the line. And finally, no one ever followed up to find out if Alyssa did, in fact, go to California.
1: Was the idea of Alyssa going to California, like, a new idea? Would that have been surprising in the note? Like, that's extremely random. Why would she say she's going to California but she had an aunt there. Exactly. So I'm really glad you brought that up. You're right. The idea
0: of Alyssa going to California wasn't exactly new, but it really wasn't something that was supposed to be happening. And here's why. So months earlier, Michael had contacted his estranged sister-in-law, Lynette, who was actually Barbara's sister. Now, if you remember, Barbara is Alyssa's mom and Michael's late wife.
1: Got it. So Lynette is the maternal aunt to Alyssa. Yeah.
0: And during this conversation, Michael asks if Alyssa can stay because she's gotten out of control and she started smoking pot and essentially has become too unruly. And despite their contentious relationship, Lynette agrees. And she says, sure, I'll take Alyssa in And you would think that would be good news, but Michael doesn't take it that way. He seems to be taken aback, and it's reported that Michael didn't expect Lynette to say yes and eventually told her, never mind, don't worry about it. You know, there's been a change of plans. I don't need Alyssa going there anymore.
1: So basically, it was a plan, but Michael ended up not being in favor of it. Right. So when she's writing a note like that, she's basically saying, hey, guess what? I don't really care that you don't want me to go anymore. I'm going.
0: That's pretty much how he made it seem. Now we're one week into Alyssa's disappearance when Michael Turney informs the police that he's received a call from Alyssa. According to Michael, Alyssa informed her stepfather that she was in California and would not be returning. She also blamed Michael for her running away from home and essentially for her reason not to ever return home. And to support this story, Michael ended up producing his phone records for the police, which indicated there was a 29-second phone call around this time that he's saying she called from Riverside, California. Now, none of that has ever been verified or confirmed, but Michael Turney sticks with that story. Years pass, and... There's been no further contact from Alyssa. In 2006, Thomas Heimer, a convicted murderer serving time in Florida, sent police a letter confessing to Alyssa's murder.
1: So if he's serving time in Florida, what the heck would he have to do with a missing person's case in Arizona?
0: Police were wondering the same thing, and they eventually realized that the letter was a hoax, but during their investigation they noticed that things weren't adding up in Michael Turney's story. There were several red flags in the years since her disappearance. One, she hadn't contacted a single one of her friends or even the aunt that she was supposed to be staying with in California. Another example is the $1,800 she initially had in her bank was still there untouched. Her social security number also had never been used, meaning she didn't get a job. She wasn't going to school anywhere There was just no evidence of her popping up anywhere. The more they looked into Alyssa's case, the more they learned about the twisted home life she had endured. Alyssa confided in a number of people about her abuse. Her boyfriend, multiple friends, even her fourth grade teacher who was dating Michael at the time. Now, we did later learn that Her relationship with Michael ended after learning of the abuse, but not one person ever made a report.
1: That's so frustrating. This blows my mind. In my regular nine to five, I am a mandated reporter. So I have reported things before. All you got to do is call, fill out the report,
0: send it in. It's such an easy thing to do when you know the outcomes could You know, really outweigh the energy that was put in to do it. You could save someone's life. Exactly. In addition to Michael's surveillance cameras set up everywhere, inside and outside the family home, he had software set up to automatically record all telephone communications in and out of the home. On top of all this, he searched Alyssa's belongings and he would routinely sit outside of the jack in the box where she worked and videotape her. Police also found unusual contracts written by Michael and signed by Alyssa. A little bit of a trigger warning here, we're about to discuss the topic of sexual abuse. There are reports that say Alyssa signed a contract stating she would not tell people she had been sexually assaulted by Michael. When a forensic psychiatrist studied the documents, they said it showed Michael had an absolute need for control and dominance of Alyssa. Which really isn't a surprise because we've just heard that he used to sit outside of her place of work, jack-in-the-box, and record her while she was on shift.
1: Right, it's not quite rocket science to put together that this is a man in pursuit of control. It's very easy to ascertain.
0: Absolutely. Now that all eyes are on Michael, Michael, Least want to get Michael into the station to ask him questions. And to nobody's surprise, Michael refuses to take a polygraph. He refuses to sit down with police for an interview. And although he did communicate with them through fax, email, and the phone, so he wasn't completely cut off from the investigators, but he made it really hard. Additionally, Michael never gave police the surveillance tapes for the day Alyssa went missing. And if you remember what I was saying, that he had surveillance footage from the inside, every angle of the inside and the outside of his home. So why wouldn't he give them over to police if he didn't have anything to do with it? And even though he told the police he reviewed eight hours of security footage, he says he didn't see anything of interest. And unsurprisingly, the phone recording system, also wasn't operating at the time of her disappearance. Just like
1: any other case.
0: We're now in December 2008. Police have executed a search warrant on the Turney family home, and they're specifically looking for any evidence in Alyssa's case. What they find are videos upon videos of Alyssa at her home, dating all the way back to the 1980s. Except they didn't find the one tape that they needed, which was the day of her disappearance. That sounds convenient. Right? Additionally, the police found a 98-page manifesto titled Diary of a Madman Martyr in Michael Turney's home. Whoa. And in it, Michael accuses the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers as being responsible for Alyssa's abduction and murder. For backstory for our listeners... Michael Turney was actually part of the Brotherhood of Electrical Workers back in the 1980s. And unfortunately, he was let go after hurting himself on the job. And after that, they had a really contentious relationship. Michael Turney was known for taking anyone and everyone to court. And that's what he would do with these people. And so he really felt that they held a grudge against him and they had sent, in his words, assassins, to kidnap and murder Alyssa as a punishment. He also claimed that they buried her in the California desert. Furthermore, Michael Turney wrote about his revenge to blow up the Union Hall and kill himself in the process. Now, if you remember, I said that this was December 2008. They actually found this manifesto on December 11th, and they truly believe that they stopped this from happening because in the manifesto, it was written that he would be blowing it up on December 15th.
1: Holy crap. They found this manifesto just in time.
0: They sure did. And they know he meant business because police found 19 high caliber assault rifles, two handmade silencers, a van filled with gasoline cans. And get this, 26 handmade explosive devices filled with gunpowder and roofing nails. It turned out to be the largest stockpile of explosives discovered in Phoenix Police Department history.
1: That is something about this case that I had no idea about.
0: I'm about to blow your mind again, because I really want to emphasize the level of danger that police felt this man presented to him and the community that he lived in. To put the level of danger in perspective, a hundred neighbors were evacuated from their homes as a safety precaution. Michael was immediately arrested, and I kid you not, he was prepared even then because he was carrying two handguns, a recording device, seven magazines of ammunition, and a knife. Police immediately took him into custody on several weapons charges, and when confronted about the weapons and the bombs, Michael said that they weren't his. In fact, he went on air and conducted an interview where he told the media that the police were responsible for the bombs because they planted them there in an attempt to frame him for his stepdaughter's death and disappearance. Two years later, in March 2010, Michael pled guilty to possessing 26 unregistered pipe bombs, which, by the way, I didn't know you
1: could register a pipe bomb. That's what I was just thinking in my head. Whoa, you can register a pipe bomb? It seems unreal.
0: The judge sentenced Michael to the maximum term, which came out to 10 years in federal prison. A forensic psychologist who Michael actually himself had hired testified at the hearing, and he said that Michael was dangerous and had a high likelihood of future violent behavior. So that backfired. Despite all of this, Michael was released from prison three years early in 2017. And upon his release, Alyssa's younger sister, Sarah, met with him at a Starbucks. Her purpose was to confront him about all the questions she had surrounding Alyssa's disappearance. And Michael told her that he would only provide honest answers on his deathbed, or if the state would agree to execute him within a week of his confession. Fortunately. Sarah went prepared and recorded the conversation. Three years later in August, 2020, Michael was arrested and charged with second degree murder in Alyssa's presumed death. Following her father's arrest, Sarah took to social media to announce the news. She wrote on Twitter, I'm shaking and I'm crying. We did it. You guys, he's been arrested. Oh my God. Thank you. Hashtag justice for Alyssa never give up hope that you can get justice. It took almost 20 years, but we did it.
1: Sarah is an absolute badass, and she inspires us in so many ways. You can hear her side of this story on her podcast, Voices for Justice, season one. And we actually get a chance to talk to her about season two of Voices for Justice in a surprise bonus episode that we have for you. It is already released. Go check it out. We're going to leave it here today. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Merch coming soon.
0: Yeah, April 5th. Mark your calendars. Now, you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you haven't already, go rate and review us on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing.